Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Sheila Brown about the significance of the word divine, the meaning of divine health and wellness, and how to bring the concept and principle of Sankofa into all we do. Let's join the conversation. Welcome, welcome. When I meet someone who can finish my sentences, especially in the field of whole person care, I am like a leech. I latch onto them immediately. Today's guest is one of those people. Fellow author and empowered woman who empowers other women, I introduce you to Sheila Brown. Sheila, introduce yourself and tell us first about the significance that the word divine holds for you. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on your amazing podcast. I am so honored to be here presenting to you and your guests. So thank you so very much. I mean, so much to my heart. Um, you know, I have a very, very special message. And um, my name, of course, as you said, is Sheila Brown. I am an attorney, a divine life strategist, a health coach, an author, a speaker, and now I'm an inventor. But before any of that matters, I am a daughter of the Most High. And I am a mother to a very special son of the Most High as well. So these, all of these amazing titles and accomplishments um, defer first to my relationship to the Creator. And so um, the work that I do, as you asked about the word divine, it is um, paying homage to the fact that nothing that I do and nothing that I recommend in the area of health, wellness, mental, spiritual, or physical alignment can be achieved effectively or properly without inviting the presence of the creator of all life and all things. And that is most high. And women who come to me for um, any kind of work around womb wellness, head wellness, foot wellness, health and wellness, total body alignment, eating, these women understand that Sheila Brown is going to ask you to open your heart to the the possibility of the creator intervening and being completely integrated 
with whatever physical strategies that we do to achieve a spiritual outcome. And so that's why we use divine self-care because it is so much deeper than just self-care, which would imply for some people, you know, the application of color to your nails, um, the application of color to your hair and toenails. And perhaps in the process of that, having the wonderful sensation of water, but it's the secondary aspect. It's not the primary aspect. So divine self-care is about employing a series of, uh, of therapeutic healing strategies that date back to ancient times when the women of Africa, when the women of the original continent ruled the world of medicine and health, when everyone came to them for the answers to any ailment, cut, disease, cough, uh, any kind of dis-ease um, in the body. It was our queen mothers who were responsible for conveying this sacred knowledge. And so divine self-care is not only connecting you back to the Most High, who is the creator of all life, but it also integrates the wisdom of our mothers and pays homage to their contributions to health and medicine so far removed from the experiences that we are having today as it relates to health and wellness, where Black women in particular are at the bottom of the totem pole and never consider the authorities over health, in, in, not even their own bodies. I was like, including their own, yes. <laughs> right. right. So as an integrative health practitioner, I work with a team whose synergy rests in the ability to address a person's mind, body, and spirit and all the conditions that that lie therein. Talk with us about your approach to divine health and wellness. Okay, so the, the premise is very simple. There are five pillars first to divine health and divine self-care. But let me first define what I consider to be divine health. It's a very simple definition. You'll hear the, the, the very simple descriptions, probably in some of your theological um, um, familiar experiences. Divine health is simply being in a state of excellent physical condition, possessing a sound mind, and experiencing spiritual balance. And in order to have all three of these elements, and you can do that at any age. It does not stop at 50. It does not start at 18. It's at any age, from the newborn babe to the great-grandmother. You know, everybody can be included in this process. And so divine self-care is the tools and the philosophical, theoretical, and the healing modalities that we use to support divine health. Now, I want to say this. Divine health is very difficult to achieve. It is a constant journey. And that's why I refer to it as the journey to divine health. Because truthfully, it is virtually impossible to be in this world, in this day and time, and experience a state of divine health. You, for example, might not eat pork, but you have to smell the pork as you're walking down the street. You yourself might not engage in the act of pornography, but you are inundated with images of child, adult, and woman pornography. So to be in a state of divine health is almost unattainable and in the world as we know it, but yeah. it is still a possibility. And when people become aware of it and become aware of how powerful it is, then they might want to ask, why is it that I'm having such a hard time experiencing it? 
And then we start to see the elements in our world, in our environment, politically, physically, spiritually, environmentally, that are impeding that. And then we might have to start taking action. But if we don't know what's possible, then we just think that this is normal to be inundated with these um with these um, encroachments to our mental well-being. And so what I'm hoping to accomplish by teaching women about the principles of divine self-care through my book that's coming out prayerfully this summer is called The Divine Self-Care Strategy, A Wellness Guide to Total Body Alignment, is to teach women that there is a historical, cultural, and spiritual context for everything we do around health and beauty. Meaning, why do we apply eyeliner to the eye. What is the reason behind that? How old is that practice? What does it do besides appear to just be a beauty practice? And so in my book, I talk about the fact that for the original African people, for the original people of the world, most of what you think of as beauty originated as medicine. See, if you lived in certain parts of Africa, for instance, in North Africa, in the area that they misguidedly refer to as the Middle East, which is just an extension of Africa, right? You are subjected to all kinds of environmental hazards that wreaked havoc on the eye, the pupil, right? And so you had the glaring heat and rays of the sun. You had the wind, sand. You had insects like flies. And you had all of these things that constantly attack the eye, eyeball. And right. so those people in their wisdom de- devised a system that we now call eyeliner, but was originally and in some languages called kohol, kohol or kohol, was to use that black liner as a barrier to some of the debris in the environment that attacked the eye because it actually does prevent. And that's why you would see men and women wearing coal when they were traveling, especially because it was designed to help refudiate some of the heart hazards to the eye. But there was another key piece to that in the fact that eyeliner today doesn't have these properties, but back then they incorporated ingredients like lead. Now you might say lead, that's so dangerous. Well, Lead, ironically, served a medicinal purpose because the lead in the coal actually triggered an immunological response in the eye that protected it from some of the viral diseases that were plaguing and causing blindness. And so, of course, as time goes on, things become a part of a ritual and a culture, and we associate it with a group of people, and we associate it with a religion. But that's the origin of it. And so there was a medicinal use to many of the practices that we're engaging in today. And so you read my book and you get some deeper insights and then you start to question, well, why am I using eyeliner today? And why am I applying mink or artificial lashes to my eye? What is the therapeutic benefit? If there is none, what is the beautification benefit? Does it have, does the application of the chemicals that are required, <laughs> the chemicals that are required to make the eyeliner and the eyelash stick, do they have any harmful or therapeutic benefits? And if they are, what are they? And guess what? A lot of people might not be aware of this, but the glue that is used to apply the eyeliner or the eye the eyelash is 
made up of a large percentage of formaldehyde. Well, you might say, well, so what? No big deal. Formaldehyde is a chemical, a biochemical byproduct. You find formaldehyde is naturally occurring whenever there is combustion. It's a, it's an invisible, um, uh, odorless gas. But what does that have to do with anything? I haven't personally experienced any problems with it. Well, perhaps not. But what if I told you that formaldehyde is the key ingredient, makes up 30% of embalming fluid? Would that right. inform maybe pique a little interest, right? Are we euthanizing ourselves in order to beautify, right? Mm -hmm. So these are some of the things that I shed light on because I want people to think very carefully about the behaviors they engage in. Because when right. we had culture, right, when we had our original culture, we had a purpose and a meaning and a reason for the things we engaged in. But if you don't have context, you might wake up one day as a little girl who's 14, 15, 16, click on the phone and see a trend that everyone who matters in the world is doing this. And so right. you need no further justification or reason for doing the behavior yourself, right? And so I want to change that. I want to provide some context because the way your face is right now is the way the, fir the first face people should see you in the world. That beautiful, unabashed, unmitigated face is the face that we should see you with probably 90% of the times. It is perfect. It is perfectly colored. It is perfectly symmetrical, proportional. It is perfectly reflecting of what you are experiencing right now in the world. You look like a woman in peace, right? You look like a woman who's relatively healthy, if not perfectly healthy, <laughs> right? And so all of these things would have been important for our ancestors to choose who they were going to mate with, right? right? Because people typically wanted to choose a mate who had the best possibility of producing family, right? right. And so the ability to show up as you are, as healthy as you are, was relevant. And then after we have selected our mates, or our mates have been selected for us, depending upon which culture you came from, then we adorned ourselves as a bride prepared for her husband decked out, right? So we have a tendency today to do the opposite, right? We deck out and then we disappoint. <laughs> we deck out, we show up bride. And then once we get the husband, we say, okay, here I am. Hope you like it. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're kind of creating a, a strange dichotomy for ourselves and doing too much work. Right? right. So this should be what our brothers see as divine beauty, that they accustom, we accustomize their eyes to seeing this and getting used to this so that there is no disappointment when they actually see us. But when we say, OK, well, now get to see what you are about to really engage with. And we show up on that day and we put on our beautiful jewelry and our beautiful colors on our face and we enhance our eyes. And then they go, whoa, right? So that to me makes more sense than trying to present bride 24 hours a day, seven days a week, capturing the hunt and then saying, here's what you really get. <laughs> and, here, and truthfully, here's what you really get is good enough anyway. But we are we're conditioning people to expect bride when they should be expecting this all day long. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I love the, I love that. That was, that was really just a nice unpacking 
Um, and we're going to get into some of those things a little bit more and engage with those a little bit more. I am a foodie. I love quality food and quantity. So tell me about how your relationship with food helped you pivot toward making healthier life decisions for yourself. Oh, this is my heart story. This is really the work that I came here to do because I, um, I went on a journey to recover myself from morbid obesity. And that journey started for me when my son turned 18. I was close to uh, 300 pounds. I was on the brink of having a heart attack and I was suffering tremendously in all areas of my life. I had no joy. I had no relationships. I didn't want to be involved with people. I didn't want to do anything that wasn't absolutely necessary to just get out of bed, go to work, and then come back home and retreat to my own little corner of the world. Life had beaten me down so badly um, that I had just really lost all hope and it expressed itself through my body and its unhealthy relationship with food. But what I soon discovered by watching a series of documentaries around veganism later, but around fasting, and I saw this video um, by a guy from Europe who came to the United States. I can't think of his name right now, but he's a very popular guy. And he kind of just like really kicked off this world of 60 day juice fast. His video was called, I think his video was called, um, it was something about 60 day juice fasting. And that video transformed the way I thought about what it meant to lose weight because I didn't know. And I was confused and I, I just, I didn't know where to begin or where to hope. And I, I fortunately had reached out to a sister here that was local by the name of Dallas. So I'd known for years and I had just come back, ran into Dallas and I was like, sis, I need your help because I was so broken and so disappointed. And so my journey began with Dallas and it, it ultimately transitioned into me engaging in a 60 day juice fast. And at that process, I lost 135 pounds in 15 months. And I did it naturally. And um, in the process of doing that, I realized that hmm, if I can juice for 60 days, I can continue doing that um, by integrating the food that I was juicing. And so I really had lost my desire for sugar, salt, and fat by the end of that process. And so I just kept it going and I became vegan in the process. And so I continued to do that work. Um, and I saw the weight continue to come down, but my life transformed. And in fact, sharing that story led to me opening up a business. And so I, I was invited to talk about my story and my journey and how it transformed me. And I wrote a book called Divinity Soup to talk about the relationship that not just eating foods that are healthy, but eating foods that were prepared out of love. And I call that divinely prepared meals and how divinely prepared meals actually play a key role in the satisfaction that we feel or don't feel when we eat a meal that can either lead us to going on and having the energy to do what it is our purpose is for the day or for the year or for our life or feeling like we need to go back and get a second bowl or a third bowl or a fifth, tenth, eleventh bowl, you know, depending on how serious the engagement is for you. So it was a personal journey that evolved. Now, I will say and confess this, and I, I talk about it in the context of what it was like emotionally to try to do a 60-day juice fast, because for someone who was in such an unhealthy state of being, 
who was so broken and who did not anticipate that the weekend would be the problem. Because once I realized that you can drop, you know, 60 pounds, 90 pounds in just 60 days, I was like, say less, right? But the week was busy. I was an attorney. I was working at this law firm and there was plenty to do. And my son was getting ready to graduate. So I was working two, three jobs and I was moving, right? So there was no real no real issue with the work of fasting during the day. But see, the weekend came up and I was by myself. And what I normally would do on the weekend was grab my favorite foods from the grocery store before I got off, got home. Um, I would stop at the local Ethiopian restaurant and get a platter of food to take with me. I would then, you know, head to the grocery store and get the desserts and the drinks that would get me through the night. And then I would surround myself on the bed with all of these amazing treats. And I would just feast and feast and feast and feast and feast and feast. And I would enjoy that movie. And before you know it, I would be knocked down. And I did not have to deal with anything else. Well, I was thinking, okay, we can see your movie, same issues, same thing. We're going to do the same thing we always do. But when I got in the bed and I clicked on the movie and I must have like subconsciously reached for the popcorn that would have normally been there. And I realized that there was no popcorn there. I had a nervous breakdown, sis. And I experienced something that many people would describe in their religious experiences, something like an exorcism. I had one of the most frightening encounters with a demonic spirit that I have ever had. If I hadn't experienced myself, I wouldn't believe it. I was crying. I was angry. Every emotion that had been harboring in my body and my spirit was manifest on that night. And its spirit said, how dare you think you can go on a fast? You're nothing without me. I'm your master. I'm your savior. I've kept you through all these years when everybody else rejected you and beat you and lied to you and turned you down. It was me who soothed your need for a kiss. It was me who made you have a conversation. I was the one who kept you going. And that was the food talking to me about the rulership it had over my life. That I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating because I needed a man. I needed salvation. I needed love. I needed sex. I needed companionship. I needed validation. And that chocolate was answering it. That popcorn was doing it. That sweet, smooth yogurt was the kiss. All of these things had beat me down that night. It was confronting me and daring me to try to make it through the weekend and not do what I had been doing for the last 10 years to get me through. And so it was a really, really hard night. And somehow, because my ego or my sense of self-determination was a little bit stronger than that demon I was wrestling with, I made it through the night, but not without a cost to my spirit. So the next weekend, I said, okay, I ain't going to have that silence beating me down like that. The next weekend, I was equipped. I said, you know what? This room is a mess. I'm going to go ahead and start organizing some of these papers that have been haunting me for the last 25 years <laughs> that I was too afraid to throw away. And I started cleaning out and cleaning out. And about two weeks into this process of battling this urge to, to deal with my weekend and deal with the lack in my life and dealing with all the things that I was avoiding confrontation with, 
it forced me to do things physically, to do the same kind of internal cleaning. And so I finally started to see the floor in my room. And I started to see where the problems were that were preventing me from applying for the license in Texas that I needed to get admitted to the federal district courts, right? And so it's just this clearing that just started to happen. And at the same time, there was a spiritual cleansing. And then it happened. I started to hear from the heavenly. I started to hear from the divine. Like, I've been trying to reach you. Mm-hmm. And now that you're like so externally and internally cluttered that you just nothing could be like you, there was nothing that could penetrate. They actually get to you. Yeah, nothing could get to you. you couldn't receive any of it. Yeah. It wasn't until I did the fast, which is like a purification, um, yeah. uh, you know, experience. It's, it's like being immersed in the fire. It's a cleansing. And you've got to battle with those demons that have prevented you from moving forward with your life. And so out of that experience that I survived came a course that I teach on emotional eating. And I was originally calling that course, How to Overcome Emotional Eating in 21 Days, a Paradigm Shift. And so I've taught that course. I've taught that course several times and the pandemic happened and I kind of got sidetracked. But that course was a very transformative course. And every woman who took the course felt um, empowered by it and the insights that I received because it was a journey of 10 weeks that we would go through where I would take them through history because we always Sankofa everything. We got to go back. I'm a strategic planner and Sankofa is a principle of strate- that is employed by strategic planning used by corporations mm-hmm. today. It's just data analysis, right? So right. when we say Sankofa, we say we're going to go back in time and we're going to look at what happened so that we can assess where we are today and devise a desired future. That's what a key component of strategic planning is, right? And so it's just data analysis, but you got to collect the data and that's why we go back. So we go back and we look at what beyond our personal family impacted our relationship with food, right? And so for me, on my journey, I realized how close my family was to slavery. So for example, one of the experiences I wasn't able to link to slavery when I was a child, the fact that my family, my mom, her sisters, uh, they actually grew up as sharecroppers in Tarboro, North Carolina. They were this close to slavery. Um, They experienced picking cotton and not getting paid for it. They experienced Mm -hmm. sometimes in instances brutal rapes and beatings, right? They were very close to slavery. And that's not that long ago. Slavery may have technically ended, but it did not end in spirit for many of our living people, not just our ancestors. My mom is still alive. She's just in her 70s. And so between connecting the dots and looking historically from, I'm always studying stories about Mother Harriet, Harriet Jacobs, Booker T. Washington, like really doing deep dives into their content. And I kept seeing this recurring theme that was playing out in my own household. And that was this theme that our ancestors kept saying is that children didn't get meat. Well, when I was a teenager, my mom would say, but my stepfather was an amazing cook. He was from Jamaica and he would cook oxtail. He would cook curry chicken. He would stew goat, you know, curry stew. And when he, he would be smelling that food and you'd be thinking, ooh, that's going to be so good. My dad was an amazing cook, red snapper. But when the plates were being dished out, someone would go to hand a plate to me and my, my teenage stepbrother. And my mom would say, oh, don't give them no food. 
make and have some hot dogs. Save that for us. That's for the adults. So in my mom's mind, subconsciously, we weren't contributing to the house. We were just, um, we were kind of like useless eaters that they considered mm-hmm. to. We were like useless eaters, right? And so a part of that legacy that my mom experienced as probably a child herself is not being able to consume meat until she was able to contribute to the household, the household's well-being. Wow. And so even though she was a woman in her um, you know, 30s and was a middle-class woman, she had a good federal government job, was doing very well, she brought that into the house of the new children and said, no, you don't eat meat. You don't get to eat. She would never say it like that, but she would just say, y'all can have some hot dogs or something from you know, the, mm-hmm. the lesser foods, she would still give right. us protein, but it was not the quality food. You weren't a contributor. You weren't an adult. You weren't a financial contributor. And that's one of the key principles or the core values of slavery is until yeah. you can contribute, you don't get rations of meat. Right. And so those are some of the experiences that you may have been having doing battle with that you don't even know, because the effect that that had on me was that I was not worthy. And it was resentment, but it really culminated for me when I realized that my grandmother, who was my step-grandmother, came to town. And when she came to town, she became the cook in the house. And when she said, it's time to eat, she was saying, first time to eat. And she expected the family to come together. Well, one day she was preparing the plates for everyone. And my mom said her usual thing, oh, don't give them those kids, those teenagers, that, that good food, you know. And she said, you give your daughter what you want, but my grandson? He's going to eat some of this fish, right? <laughs> and so my brother was like, hey, see you later, Let's do this, Let's do this right? Everyone kind of, you know, went on with their day. They had their plates. And no one really paid attention to the fact that I didn't eat. Mm-hmm. My mom went back to her room. My dad went on with his plate. My brother sat at the table with his grandmother. And nobody realized the impact that that had on me. It was like I was invisible because when my mom was discriminating, she discriminated against her daughter and her stepson. But the grandmother said, screw your daughter, my son, and my family. As for me and my house. (laughs) As for me and my house, yeah. Unprotected, you know, Mm. alone, and feeling very resentful to everybody in the house around food. Can you imagine the impact that that had on me as an adult? Wow. In subconscious ways. The resentment, the entitlement to not just have one plate of fish, but to have two, three, four servings of fish if I want. And to be able to give that to my son because I make the money now. And nobody's going to tell me what to do with my money and my food and how much me and my son. So, baby, you eat and you keep on eating. You eat and you eat whatever you want. Right. So there evolved this kind of entitlement around food, this gluttony around food and this sense of food arrogance. That came out of that experience. We're all engaging in food arrogance these days. It's looking in your refrigerator, opening it up, and realizing that despite the fact that you just went to the grocery store, you say, God, I don't want nothing in there. And then you go and you get Japanese Monday, Chinese Mm -hmm. Tuesday, Ethiopian Wednesday, Mexican Thursday, Caribbean Friday, Saturday, whatever is at the, you know, the fair and that food that's in the refrigerator goes to waste. Wow. Food arrogance is a key element in the community that we're suffering from as a people. And the solution is food humility. 
Wow. And that's I a whole that. other topic. But I know you don't want to spend yeah. all this time talking about food. No, I love that. We might even have to have a part two because I love that distinction. And I think so many times we overlook that. We don't think about, like, once we get to a certain point, changing the dynamic, the pendulum shifts so, swings so much that it's becoming pathologic in another, in another direction. There's one, uh, there's a difference between, you know, pathology of deficiency and then there's a pathology of excess and it's all pathology. And while we're still on the topic of food, I want to go back to this divinity soup. How does the divinity soup book facilitate that unshackling and the uncoupling of women from emotional eating and negative body image and self-limiting beliefs? Also, while simultaneously helping them understand the whys behind what they're eating. Well, this the Divinity Soup is a, just a really sweet introduction to the spiritual aspect of food preparation and eating food. So it's kind of yeah. like this brief but sweet introduction to the concept of divinely prepared meals. But in a way, okay. I'm also introducing the opposite of that, which is contentiously prepared meals, which I recently wrote an article about. These are two very important concepts because within these two concepts are the key to liberation and freedom from emotional food abuse, food substance abuse, and emotional eating. And so one of the things I talk about in Divinity Soup is how intentional our grandparents were oftentimes when they cooked. When my grandmother made her collard greens, for example, it would start with, mm, I think I want me some greens, right? Mm-hmm. And she might say that, and then you would be like, ooh, we're going to have greens tonight. And then as you <laughs> learn to live with her, you learn, no, that's not happening tonight. And it might not even happen <laughs> tomorrow. She was putting the intention out because for her, preparing greens was a divine ritual. It was right. intentional. She had to get her mind, body, and spirit, and the ingredients wrapped around mm-hmm. this concept first. And so about a week later, we would head to the grocery store. and You would see her in the grocery store, and she couldn't just pick up a bundle of collard greens. She had to mm-hmm. fumble through the collard greens, looking at the size, looking at the texture, looking at the coloring, and she had to pick the perfect collard greens. And then we would get mm-hmm. home, and you would think, <laughs> get some collard greens, mm-mm. She would proceed to wash the collard greens. That might take a day and a half. Because I don't know if you remember back then when we were younger, collard greens didn't come in these cute little neat packages all clean and crisp and ready to go. They were filthy. They had worms, gnats, critters, critters, centipedes, dirt, mud. So she would spend all this time and she would admonish me, chill. You better not ever eat anybody's greens except for mine because they don't clean your greens. My grandmother would clean her greens with Tide powder detergent. She would soak her green. Now, don't ask us how we're alive, but she would soak her greens for with. And I've other heard other people talk about that. It was a southern thing. My grandmother did hers with uh, dish detergent. Okay, so you see the concept. Yeah. It was southern women did not play about cleaning those greens, and my grandmother in particular didn't. You wouldn't find a grit, a dirt, anything. You were a filthy woman if you cooked collard greens <laughs> for her, and they had yeah. any kind of indication of life from the ground in. So she went through this ritual, was cleaning and dunking, cleaning and dunking. And I just illustrate the story about her process to really illustrate how beautiful the result was, even though it resulted in less than one eighth of what she spent the effort on, the, was the, the taste was immaculate and it filled not just our physical body, but it filled our souls 
when you left grandma's dinner's plate, grandma grandma Betty's uh, dinner table, it was a divine experience. You left there feeling invigorated. I was never tired. I was never feeling depleted or sleepy after leaving her table. It was just something so intentional about the way she cooked and prepared a meal. And so Divinely Prepared Meals is asking people to think very deeply about how you prepare your meal. When you cook, do you cook in anger? Are you upset about what someone said to you during the day? Did you just get in a fight with your spouse? Are your children, are you angered? Are you feeling depressed? Don't cook that way. I know that's a, I know that you may say, I know Sheila have no time. You know, it's, I barely have time after I get off work. I don't have time to go through a healing meditative ritual, but at least be mindful of where right. you are in your mind when you begin to care, because you put that energy into your food. Mm-hmm. And that's why when we have that, the annual pick at, picnic where the family comes together and everybody is dying to taste Aunt Bessie's, you know, potato salad mm-hmm. or, or Uncle Joe's, you know, whatever he's got on the grill right. or, or great grandma's um, sweet potato pie. And you go, mm, she put her toe in that, right? right. What you're really <laughs> saying is that, God, she put some love in that. Yeah, yeah that was an intentional love she put in that, right? right? And so it the layers of it just magnify when you become cognizant of the power and the healing power of foods, right? right? So if they can do that with foods that are not as healthy, with white sugar and, and still give you a sensation of love, imagine what we can right. do when we understand the power of greens and the power yeah. of certain roots, and not roots in a, in a spiritual way, but roots like um, right. the roots that we cook for food, the right? The actual vegetable, the, the, yam, the, 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 the yeah. food, the, the plantain, the things that come from the ground, the root potatoes, right? The yeah. root and the, the plant and the medicinal, when we incorporate that and divine energy and love into the food, that's Ooh. when it becomes transformative, where people get up from your dinner table and they go solve world problems, right? Right. Now, no? yes. the, con- the complete opposite of that, the contentiously prepared side is when someone cooks food for you for any other reason than satisfying your physical hunger and your spiritual hunger. That's Mm -hmm. what happens when we go into, let's say, the local Asian-inspired restaurant called Mm -hmm. Yum Yum Eat It Up, Choo Choo, or, you know, Mm -hmm. Swallow Fast, right? These kind of disrespectful names that speak to the person, the commercial enterprise's perception of you. You don't even... Mm -hmm know how to interpret a restaurant like the name Emerald China and realize that they're serving, you know, quality style Asian inspired food, right? You gotta right. you gotta go to a restaurant or a fast food joint that's called Yum Yum. We have plenty of those here in DC. Yum Yum, Eat Up, Choo Choo. These are saying right. you probably aren't intelligent enough to know unless we give you the sound of the food, Mm -hmm. the experience, right? This insults. And then the further insult is you go in there and what separates you is a three inch bulletproof gas. So the person who is now serving you is protecting themselves from you with a barrier because you can't be trusted with human interaction, but you can still come to us. We will feed you. Now, the only situations that I can think of where the food person is serving food to someone behind a barrier is a zoo and a prison. 
because mm. the recipient Say is, that again. The recipient Say is that again. dangerous. Yet they're ill-equipped to prepare food for themselves. They are dependent. Say that again. Say that point again. Because I think I think that visual automatically shifts just the words that came before it. A zoo or a prison. A zoo or a prison. Okay. Go ahead. Continue. Yes. 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 You they they and, and you might even go into one of these establishments and you're trying to be nice because you know you're handing your life over to these people. And you're like, oh, this is so pretty. Um, can I have uh, egg bouillon with a side of egg rolls? And they're like, what do you want? Right, okay, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> but they'd be like, you know, they're very abrupt, very matter-of-fact, unkind. And they're just like, what you want, you know? And you're like trying to be as nice as you can because you know they have the power of your life in their hands, right? And so you're, you're trying to be as nice as possible. And then they, $4.99, you know, they take the food and you put it in your, your little cubicle, you toss it around, and then they hand you your food in this little coffin, right? This little coffin. And it's just a, a rectangle or, or, or a square shape. It's got a lid, just like a little coffin. And then they push it out to you and they protect themselves real quick, right? And I was saying, the only other situation where you find that is a zoo where there's a dangerous beast that cannot be trusted to prepare its own food or to receive food in a more humane way and in prison where you have to be protected from the wild human being who conducts himself as an animal, right? And so the only difference between the zoo and the criminal experience is that you pay for the experience. Wow. You opt in and pay for it. That's when you see brothers and sisters going into these restaurants, demanding to be served. You gonna, you gonna serve me? How dare you not include me in this restaurant experience? No, I'm not leaving here. I'm not begging, please take my money. Feed me, feed me, feed me. And they're saying, kindly, sir, please leave. You're not welcome here, please leave. A person, in another situation who, let's say you and I got into a heated argument. And then 20 minutes later, you come to me with a plate of food and say, I made this for you. Eat it. <laughs> nah. <laughs> nope. But we do nope. the exact opposite when it comes to the foods <laughs> that we're eating out. We will have yeah. a full-fledged argument about what these people are. And then we sit down because we think we've won. And then we trust that we are going to get a divinely prepared meal. No. Right? Wow. It's, wow. It's, a, it's astonishing. But when you yes. when you hear when you think about it in those terms, so what's the solution? We come back to our homes. We make our own foods. We get our own ingredients. And we spend our money, the money that we would have spent. We take one fourth of that and everybody contributes and we enjoy each other's company and we look each other in the eye and we talk about our day. We talk about our needs. We talk about our problems. We talk about our solutions. And we do it from the safety and comfort of our own home where no one's spitting in the food. No one's cursing the food. No one is charging us three times the value, four times the value of the food. And no one is wondering when we're going to leave. Wow. Thank you, Sheila. Join us as we continue the conversation in part two when we discuss the tenets of Queendom Care. And that's Queendom and Care with a Q the divine self-care strategy, 
and how divine intention plays a role in health, wellness, and healing. Stay tuned.